Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. If you want to find your way to the book of Ephesians, we're going to spend our time there in the book of Ephesians. But as you're doing so, we're going to spend a little bit more of an extended time staging um, our study together. So I'm going to ask you to flip there, but we're not going to read it immediately. We're going to stage our thoughts as we look into the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab the black book uh, Bible there in the pew in front of you. You'll find our text on page 976, 976. But let us peer for a moment into the depths and person and work of Christ. God, perfect Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal in majesty and in glory. They have always been and will always be in perfect unity and delight within the Trinity themselves, not needing anyone or anything. But by their infinite wisdom and power, they created the world out of nothing and all that is in it. And God spoke all things into existence, and his highest creation was man and woman. They were created for communion, for fellowship with this beautiful Majestic, glorious, triune God. They were called to be rulers and stewards of the world that the Lord had given them. However, they failed by sinning against God. And the sin's effect have spread to all people and all of creation. Worse yet is that there is no longer communion with their creator. Sin is awful. But the effects of being separated from God are catastrophic. We must feel and understand that the greatest travesty of sin is that we are no longer in communion with our maker. And we see God in various ways through diverse means begin to bring about a plan of salvation for his people to once again be in fellowship with him. It was not until the nation of Israel came out of captivity that God began to dwell among them again. First, it was just with one man, primarily Moses. Listen to the words of Exodus 33. It says, now Moses used to take to the um, excuse me. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and they would stand at their tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Imagine that scene. We, we know from the way that the, the Bible describes the organization of Moses was a Levite, so he was in the center of the camp, and he would walk out of the camp to the tent of meeting before the tabernacle was erected. And everybody would stand outside their tent, and they would watch him walk to this tent of meeting, knowing he is about to encounter Yahweh. And they would praise, and they would worship. 
Moses, an earthly mediator between God and man, would walk into the tent of meeting and speak to God. And all the people worshipped as they saw Moses experience this communion and this fellowship with God. Yet they could not go in themselves. They could not draw near to God. They were still not in communion with Him. Not only this, God gives instructions later on in the book of Exodus of how to organize the tabernacle. Exodus 40 tells us the completion of the tabernacle and all of its assemblies was built. And listen to the words of Exodus 40. It says, Then the cloud, the glory of God, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, which was in the center of the camp of the people. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the, tab- whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was it by night, in the sight of all the houses of Israel throughout all their journeys. So now God's glory settles upon the tabernacle. And no one could enter, not even Moses this time. Only one man once a year would enter, by the, but he had to do so by the blood of bulls and goats. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, we call this in the scriptures. They would enter this holy of holies. They would pass through the veil that was a warning saying, stay away. The veil was decorated with the cherubim. The angels that were set outside the garden saying, stay away. And now there is a visual representation of this portrait. Stay away. And only one person could truly commune with God. And that was only once a year. And that was only by the blood of bulls and goats. But even that communion wouldn't last. As God's people took the promised land and they were commanded to build a permanent building called the temple. We see a similar scene in the book of Kings to what we see here in Exodus 40. Solomon's praying over the temple and the the glory of God descends upon the temple. But yet again, only one man could go into communion with God once a year. They still had the veil that said, stay away, do not draw near. We could see scenes throughout the Bible that the faithful people of God seeking his favor and wisdom and blessing, they would go to the tabernacle, they would go to the temple, but yet their communion with God was still very limited. Some capacity. And we see an even more amazing scene in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a book, a a prophet who was in Babylon after uh, Israel had been captured and broken by them. And now there's only Judea and Jerusalem are the only parts remaining. And, And he sees in a vision by the Spirit... The temple of the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 10. It says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood on the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before their eyes. And they went out in the wheels beside them. And there stood the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of Israel was over them. The glory of the Lord has left the temple because of the rebellion of the people of God. God's glory had abandoned the temple, the building. How could this be? God had said, I'm going to commune with you through this tabernacle, through this temple, through this veil. I'm going to be among my people. And yet he is leaving the temple. 
It's able to always been where God dwelt among them, even if they could not enter his presence. And now the glory of the Lord had departed, never again to settle upon the temple. What were they to do? How were they able to commune with God? What heartache from perfect fellowship in the garden to being banned from his presence to glimpses of his glory in a tent, a tabernacle, and a temple. God's glory and his presence had now left the people of Israel. And hundreds of years later, when God's people had begun to lose hope, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, came on the earth. Christ, born of a virgin womb, God dwelling in human form, not in a temple and not in a tent. God had taken on flesh in Christ. Jesus was God in the flesh, truly God and truly man. Yet the veil was still in the temple, saying, stay out, you cannot come near. Until after Jesus lived a righteous life that we could not live And in perfect obedience to the will of the Father, he gave up this life for sinners who had rejected him. Jesus died, shedding his blood, his most precious blood. Blood more prized than that of bulls and goats goats was shed so that the curtain may be torn. Listen to the words of Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling to Elijah. And one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait until we see whether Elijah would come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And pay attention. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do we understand what this means? God's people can commune with God again. Jesus took our sins in one sense. He was banned from God in one sense. So that we might draw near. The veil of separation was torn. What one said no longer stay away cries out to draw near unto me. Jesus rose from the grave three days later, proving that his sacrifice was acceptable and displaying the first fruits of the resurrection. Oh, what a glorious day that was. God's people can draw near to God again. How? Through his spirit. We see in the Bible that all who have repented of their sins turning away from their rebellion and trusting in Christ's work for their salvation, that we have been sealed by God's Spirit, that He now indwells us as a people. We have become the temple. We are the meeting place of God and man. By His Spirit, we are now the temple. 
And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the Spirit pours the love of Christ into our hearts as we cry out, Abba, Father, brothers and sisters, when we are praying, it is no small thing. Think about it. For thousands of years, symbols of stay away, stay out, you can't come near. Now as New Testament believers, indwelt by God's Spirit, when we pray, He is saying, draw unto me. I'm leaning into your prayers at this moment, and yet we trivialize our prayers. But the people of Exodus watched from a distance. What the people of the temple era could never do. But we, as God's people of a new and better covenant, we get to do. We get to draw close to God. We draw near to God and now have access to God who delights to hear his children. So if we think too lightly of prayer or practice prayer too infrequently, we are short-circuiting God's plan for our good. We must take praying more seriously. And we must learn to invest more time in this very endeavor. Prayer is not mundane. Prayer is not ordinary. Prayer is entering the throne room of our maker according to Revelation 4. And we plead for his grace and his mercy and more of him. Prayer is the very pulse of God's people as we long for more of him in our lives. For more of his righteousness. For more of him to be present among us. Prayer is the very breath of God's people as we long to carry out his purposes in our lives. As we devote ourselves to his mission of making disciples. Prayer is the very feat of vitality and flourishing for the church to become worshipers who seek to serve the watching world. If we are not praying, then we have forgotten what we are. And this should leave us with two questions. Do we see prayer as the central piece of our lives that empowers our worship, our obedience, our very mission? Do we truly believe it when God says, ask anything in my son's name and I will grant it unto you? Now I have to confess, I have a pretty weak prayer life. I'm preaching just as much to myself as I am to you, God's people. I've become very comfortable with the everyday routines of following Jesus that I've lost my urgency for the mission and thinking that I can do this on my own. And this month, I've been asking God to ignite a fire of prayer in our church that leads to bold service, passionate care, and faithful obedience for all of us. And if you're to take seriously the mission that we've been given to go and make disciples, then we must cultivate a deeper longing for God that is seen in a more fervent prayer life. See, God's people must long for more of Jesus in his return. This happens, as we've been learning, through fasting and prayer. Last week, we saw that Jesus, though he did not command fasting, it was a discipline of the faith of his people. As we long for the coming bridegroom and more of him until he returns. We also saw that fasting helps to reveal what is controlling us as we seek to eat more of the table of the Lord instead of the table of this world. Fasting is an intentional denial of good gifts from the Lord, like food, that fans our faith 
to long for more of the giver and not just delighting in his gifts. Fasting is how we cry out to God for him to move and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And I hope that you were able to participate last week as we had a corporate fast on Thursday. I pray God is stirring in us a greater appetite for him for a mission that he has called us to. Yet fasting alone cannot be adequately cultivated passion and dependence on God. We as a church, we must be devoted to prayer. You could study church history, you could study the scriptures, and you will never see a movement of God that was not preceded by a people on their knees before their maker. Every time we see God move in mighty ways, his people are pleading and praying for that to be so. Now, when most of you hear that we must be devoted to prayer, you think of some sort of ministry the church has, right? The prayer ministry of the church. And there's nothing wrong with prayer ministries in churches. They're, they're vital. They're They're even necessary in some capacities. It's just another thing that we do, a ministry of part of the church. But hold on, let's think about that for a moment. In his book, Praying Church, Paul Miller, he helps with a very vibrant picture, I think, that helps us understand this. You'll see this up on the screen if you put those pictures up there. This is the way we typically view it, this first figure. Got it back there, guys? Maybe. There it is. This is how we typically view it. Prayer, right? Me, preaching, plans, vision, facility, all that. Prayer is just one part. You'll see it. Prayer is just one part of the normal church. The prayer ministry. You know, those are the guys that are really sold out to pray. But the way the Bible seems to describe prayer, should be, it should look vastly different. And I'm very thankful to Paul Miller and how he helps us with this. The next picture. Look at a praying church. Do you see the difference? At the core of the church is the very spirit of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and everything that we do is we're praying to that God work, and we're saying use that to fulfill, to bring about. Prayer is the central piece of our work as the church. If everything is not saturated by prayer, then we will miss the mark. will always be by man's strategies. Prayer must be permeated in everything that we do. And to help us see that, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, as we see one key point today. Prayer is, a, is the spiritual access to the power of Jesus. Prayer is the spiritual access to the power of Jesus' work. It's the only point. We need to understand that if we want to have the power of Christ resting on us, we must pray. For prayer is the access by the Spirit to the powerful work of Jesus. One of the first interesting things is is prayer. I said fasting was not commanded because it's not. Prayer is commanded in Scripture throughout. Pray without ceasing. That's That's a command. Throughout the sections of the Bible, we see that prayer is commanded in Scripture in various places and ways. Yet when we hear a command, we think of it a duty instead of a delight. And this is not the way the Bible portrays prayer. Sometimes we think of it this way, maybe that prayer is the fuel that powers our spiritual engine. But that's not exactly true. Think of it differently. Think back to Ezekiel 47, that throne, that river flowing out of the throne room that we see Ezekiel have. Prayer is not the river. Anybody know what the river is? Christ. 
He, he's the river. He is the living water. He is the one who is wading so deep that, that it flowed into the Dead Sea and it caused it to be alive. That was the sea it was referencing there. Listen to the words again of verse 8. The water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. Guess what sea that is? That's the Dead Sea. Do you know what grows in the Dead Sea? Nothing. So it gives us this beautiful vision of something flowing out of the temple and it goes into the Dead Sea and then everything comes alive. So says, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there were very many fish. The river is the complete work of Jesus that brings dead things to life and prayer is the means that we drink of that river. Does that make sense? Prayer isn't the fuel that ignites our mission. Prayer is the means by which we access the river. And this is important for us to understand because we don't have mindless prayers. There's no special incantations or or just meditations on stillness. There's times we be still in the presence of the Lord. But prayer is specifically asking the spirit that is now united with Christ in his resurrection to pour out Christ's resurrection power in us to live. To bring the dead things of our lives back to life. We want leaves that do not wither in seasons of suffering and pain. If we want fruits that will always be flourishing, prayer is the means that we drink or we gain spiritual access to the resurrection power of Jesus' work. And everything in our lives as followers of Christ is is considered a spiritual work. Therefore, nothing should be done without prayer if it is to be done for Christ's sake. This is why we can pray without ceasing. I don't walk into Publix... And not think it's a spiritual act. Because if I'm the temple, I'm the representation of Christ. Therefore, I need patience as I walk through those aisles. And how do I access patience? I pray. Because in prayer, the Spirit draws into the work of Christ. And He pours the riches upon us through that. If I want to love my wife in an understanding way. If I want to lead my children in the fear and admission of the Lord. If I don't want to become swayed to the idols of greed, gluttony, or money. I have to be a praying person. For it is the ways we drink of the fullness of Christ and all that he is. And so now look with me at Ephesians 1 as I kind of walk us through this text. There's so much here. We could spend months just on this section. But I just want us to look at how Paul prays for these people and what it teaches us. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 15. It's for this reason, because I, Paul, have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, speaking to the church of Ephesus here, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? 
What kind of power is this? Well, it's that he worked, the power he worked in Christ, that he may be raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but in the age of the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In his prayer, Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, he describes the means of spiritual access to the fullness of Christ's work. First, he rejoices over their faith and love. Why would you give thanks to God for what someone else did? Paul believes something. He says, I give thanks to the Father for this faith and love that you are displaying and that has been made known in the Asian culture around you in Asia Minor where they were located. Why would he thank the Lord for that? Why do you thank someone? What's the purpose of this? Kids, when you say thank you, why are your parents trying to teach you to do and understand? That you are the recipient of something that was not previously yours. Gratitude, giving thanks, is the posture of receiving even if you did something after you received. And Paul is displaying here, he believed these people's faith and love was because God gave them the ability to be faithful and to love. And so he gives thanks to the Father of glory. And he prays something very specific for them. Did you notice that in verse 17? Look at verse 17. He says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In the knowledge of him. Now, is Paul saying that they didn't have the spirit previously? I mean, he's praying they would have the spirit, or like, almost like, they're, were they, did they miss, like, did they only have like a third of the spirit? And he's praying for them to have the other thirds? What's he praying here? This is an interesting thing that I think we need to think on for just a moment. No, we know Paul is not saying that they don't have the Spirit. Because if you go just a few verses up, he says, For all who have believed, you have been sealed by the Spirit. The Spirit is our seal. It is the guarantee of our inheritance. It is the identification that I am one of God's chosen people. The Spirit indwells me and is working within me. So what is he asking for if it's not for the Spirit? What seems Paul is saying that there are degrees of the Spirit. And I want to be careful when I say this word, degrees of the Spirit. I do not mean like you only have 35%. You have the fullness of the Spirit. The moment you repent to believe and you're sealed by the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit dwells in you. But here's the problem. You don't depend on Him very well. I'm not saying you get more spirit. That's not what I'm saying, nor is Paul saying. Paul is saying, you are just a stubborn dude, and you need to understand how to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. You need to understand the fullness of the spirit and what you have. You don't understand what you have, Christian. Do you realize you are never more resurrected than you were the moment the spirit indwelled you? I don't don't think you heard me. I'm never more alive than the moment I was given life by God's grace. The fullness of the resurrection and the righteousness of God, the fullness of the Spirit was mine in that moment. 
I am never more resurrected in power in life than I was the moment I believed. But the problem is, is I don't depend. I don't draw on the fullness of. I don't drink enough of the grace of God. It seems when Paul's reminding us of like we see in Ephesians 5, 18, it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that would be debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Is he saying, I need more spirit? Like, I got to go hunt him? Like, where's the spirit? I need, oh, there's another glass of the spirit. No. He's saying that I got to press into. I got to draw on. I've got to drink of what I already have. Or Galatians 5, where he says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It appears that Paul understands that all of God's people who are indwelt by his spirit, that we have some capacities where we can be more controlled and more empowered by the spirit, though we have the fullness of him already. Does that make sense? I don't want you to think like I'm saying there's like part of the spirit you don't have if you are indwelt by God's spirit. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we are not controlled by, we are not filled with the fullness of all of the sufficiency of Christ and his work on our behalf. Back in verses 17 and 18 again. So what he's praying there, he's saying that the God of the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation. And look what he says. It's not just spirit and revelation. It's connected to something. It's directly connected to something. Look back at verse 17. It's connected to a what? Knowledge of him. That the wisdom we need to walk faithfully in this world, the wisdom you need to live on mission for Jesus, and the revelation or the clarity or the unveiling or the seeing more of is connected to a knowledge of Christ. We should never say, Lord, I need to see more of you. As if we can set our Bibles aside and just go out into the middle of the trees and say, Lord, show me you in your trees, please. I want to see you in the clouds. Can we see God in the trees? And the, yes, his glory is revealed in his creation. But if we want to be transformed, we have to say, Holy Spirit, help me to see more of Jesus and all that he's done. And then he lists three things for us here. Did you see this in verse 18? This knowledge of him... It's connected not just to our minds, but he says that they may have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That you may know, and he says three specific things here. One, what is the hope to which you have been called? What are the riches, two, of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? The hope we see here, again, if you were to read the uh, opening chapter, the the sections above this, this calling that we've been given is that you were once dead, you were once alienated, but now you are one with God. You are in Christ. The hope we have is that one day we will see our Creator and our Savior once again face to face. That's my hope. My hope is not for a better life now. My hope is to be like the garden where I'm walking with Jesus down the streets. And living for him in all of my life, that's my hope. But not only that, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance? What's the only thing that can sway your heart from all the table of this world? Greater riches. And who are those bound up in? Those are bound up in Jesus. But then look at the third one. 
Verse 19, it says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? I love when Paul, and by the Spirit's inspiration, has a phrase like that. I mean, you could just say, what is the power of God towards us who believe? But he doesn't do that. He, by the Spirit's inspiration, puts two words, immeasurably great. Why would he do that? Think about this for a moment. You as a human being, what do you do with everything? When you drove here from your house and you looked at that little thing that goes this way and that way, some of y'all goes really far that way. What is it doing? It's measuring. It's measuring. All of you families who prepared food that's sitting back there for us to be able to feast in a moment. How did you make that food? You measured. Well, maybe not some of you. Maybe you have your recipes so down packed you just kind of dump. But at some level, you're still doing measuring. How do you, Some of you are celebrating birthdays last week, and some of you have birthdays tomorrow. What are you doing with birthdays? You're measuring everything. The fact that we measure as human beings is a reminder that we are finite. That there is limits to the things we do. And yet... Paul puts this phrase in front of the power that's at work within us. He says, immeasurable. Do this for a second. Kids, do this mental exercise. How many sand, what do you call them? Just little pieces of sand are on a beach. How many kids? It's almost impossible to measure, right? But at the end of the day, guess what we can do if we spend enough time? We could measure it. Or what about this, adults? How many gallons of water are in the ocean? We can't put a number to it, but guess what? At the end of the day, we could what? We could measure it. So that means the amount of power that God has available through Christ for his people is greater than every single piece of sand on the sand shore. It is more powerful than every gallon that is in the ocean. And that's why we pray. Because the immeasurable greatness of our God in Christ is available for us, his people, so that we might go live for him. We think too lightly of prayer. How does this spiritual work happen? Ironically, even though it is accessing Jesus' power, it is the Spirit in us that is making it available. The Spirit is the only connection we have to the fullness of Jesus. Let me say that again. The Spirit is the only access we have to the fullness of Jesus. That means you cannot, like, Serve God long enough so that he will, by his spirit, give you more. This is why we're not Roman Catholic. There's not means of grace that I have the ability. Here, have more of Jesus. Here, have more of Jesus. I can't do that. There's nothing that I or the body of the church can do for you. Only the spirit in you can access the fullness of Jesus. But he wants to. He delights to. 
And any Christian who wants to make an impact in this world for the kingdom, which is Christ's mission, must simultaneously know the fullness of Christ's work and seek it through prayer. Because it's connected to a knowledge. Absolutely, it's connected to an understanding of Christ. And all of his fullness. But do you notice what the power is? Go down with me to verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? That, so what's he going to do? What's he going to elaborate on? What is this power? What is this great might that we have access to by the Spirit in prayer? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of Excuse me, and seated, and seated him at his right hand. So what's this power? We see it in other locations. Paul says that I might know his resurrection power. That's what he's talking about here. The power that raised Jesus, a, a lifeless body from the dead, is the same power that you have access to by his spirit for the fullness of Jesus' work. And you access it how? Prayer. A knowledge of God revealed in his word. But a knowledge of God that's only a knowledge will fail you. If you are not praying, pleading. Well, believe me, look, just look at Paul's prayer in, in chapter 3 as we look at one more section. Paul, after this, continues just to talk about the beauty of the human deadness as a court of sins, but God makes us alive in Christ and then knits us together as one people, then he breaks out into another prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. So look at that. It's on page 977 of the Black Pew Bibles. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. What power is it? It's the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead back in the prayer in chapter 1. But he's saying something specific here. Where does that power strengthen us? In our inner being. Where's that? Here? It's within us, right? It's just this, what the Old Testament would call the whole, the heart, or the soul. It's the, the, the center of our being. It's the, it's the breath of God, in a sense, that was breathed upon Adam. Our eternal nature. Let me grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now that's amazing. So what is it that strengthens us? Christ in our hearts. Remember, that's what we were to pursue, a knowledge of him and all of his work. So when we're praying, we're praying if we want to be spiritually powerful, if we want to be vibrant in vitality for the missions of God, we need more of Christ dwelling in our hearts. But not just that. Listen to Paul. I love this section. That you may, I'm in verse uh, 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ. But pay attention. That does what? Surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. Okay. We got a lot of people that love knowledge and love theology out here. 
I myself am one of them. But if you are not experiencing in your soul the fullness of the love of Christ, then you have never been filled with the fullness of God. The knowledge of God is only a means by which we experience the love of God. Paul says that the eyes of their hearts need to be enlightened to know the fullness of Jesus' work. Now here we see that this knowledge is nothing if the Spirit does not take that knowledge and turn it into an experience of love that fills us with the fullness of God. I tried to give you an example of how this works. We just got done reading the forgiveness of God, right? The book by Tim Keller, Forgiveness. And the whole purpose of that book was for this purpose. We see that we have been commanded by God's people to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. But this is an impossibility if you have not experienced the overwhelming forgiveness of God personally. If you have not been freed to experience the love that we've been given in the Son. Because you know what? I don't know about you, but when I I know the command, forgive. I, I mean, I've read it multiple times. But if I, by my own strength, try to go forgive someone who has grievously sinned against me, I'm still holding on to bitterness. I still have a rock in my back pocket just in case they step out of line that I can sling at them. So what is it that changes me, that frees me to be so violently sinned against by the world and others that I rather willingly forgive? It's the experience of the love of God, the vastness of your own sin against the Holy Maker and the forgiveness of Christ that if you've truly experienced it, if you've truly delighted in it more and more and praying, God, I want to drink of the river that flows from the throne of grace, then bitterness will be gone. And you'll be freed. Resentment will no longer reside in your heart. Vengefulness will no longer be an echo in your heart. There is no living the Christian life by sheer willpower. No Christian can live out a biblical command to love, to serve, to bear witness to him by their own strength. You cannot. We must have a knowledge of Jesus and all that he's accomplished. And we must experience the knowledge in a real, tangible, spiritual way through prayer. The Spirit transforms our knowledge of God into a deep experience of love that then frees us to walk in resurrection power. Prayer is the only way to strengthen and deepen our experience of God's love. We cannot live for Him daily without this. And may we not forget God delights to hear us, that we've been called and commanded to draw near to Him in prayer. So if we as individuals, or if we as a church, if we really want to get serious about following God's commands, if we really want to be serious about making his name known to the nation, starting here in our neighborhoods and with our very neighbors, if we want God to move mighty in our lives, if you want to get rid of that bitterness, that resentfulness, if you want to see things transformed, then you must experience God's love. But we can't experience God's love without a knowledge of him and without praying that God would help us to see what that knowledge means. And how it means for me. Remember, prayer is your spiritual access to the power of Jesus' work by His Spirit. 
Prayer is essential for you, for me, for us. It's not just one ministry of the church that a few people are devoted to. Yes, there are some that seem to be mightily gifted in prayer. And yes, they need to use that in in real powerful ways. Brothers and sisters, every fiber of our being as a church should say, we must pray. We must read and we must pray and then we must go. And maybe you're like me. You need some very practical steps. Maybe you're like, Pastor Josh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly horrible at praying. Welcome to the club. Because prayer is my cry, God, I can't. I don't like saying that. But the more I see myself and the more God reveals my flesh and my brokenness, the more I want to drink of this river that flows from the throne room of God. So if you struggle with praying, there's four quick things, practical steps I would encourage you to use. Maybe you're a note taker, you want to write these down. We must see that there is a connection to a knowledge of Christ. So if you want to be a better prayer, you need to be a better reader. Your prayer life will ebb and flow with the amount of understanding you have of God's word. To become a better prayer person, you need to become a better Bible person. Fill your hearts, fill your minds with the fullness of God. And then pray those things back to God. If you don't come on Wednesday nights, that's what Pastor David leads us in. We use the Psalms. And it just governs and guides our prayers. We've got a wonderful book that I would love to give you. It's called Praying Through the Scriptures. Super thin, easy book, but it helps to cultivate that knowledge of God that then leads us into prayer. One thing I would encourage you, if you have a daily Bible reading time, before you get up from wherever you do that, get a note card and write out that text into a prayer. Give an example. It's like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. How would I turn that into a prayer? A variety of ways I could do it. If I'm praying for myself, I'd say, God, help me to recognize that, Father, I was so loved that you sent your only son, that I might have eternal life. And just pray that back to him. If you have lost ones in your home or in your neighborhood, turn that into a prayer for them. Take a biblical text with a note card and simply turn it into a prayer. And as Pastor David encourages here, put it on your dash, put it in your wallet. Do not use your phone. Why? Because you will get distracted. Put it on a note card where it's the only thing you see. There are some really amazing prayer apps out there, but my problem with those apps is I see all these other notifications that pop up and I get distracted really easy. I can't use those. Good old-fashioned paper and pen are the best means. But take a text you're reading and just turn it into a prayer and then keep it with you throughout the day. Secondly, I want to challenge us as a, as a congregation. You have a members directory. You have access to that on our website if you're a member here. And it's got everybody's name and everybody's phone number and everybody's anniversaries and birthdays that is a part of our church. Use that to pray. But I want to challenge you to do this. Today, tomorrow, maybe even up to Wednesday. Pray as a family. Spirit, who is specifically in this church can I give my intentional prayer to for the month of July? Just choose two families or or two family units. That could be a single person or a family unit. Just two. 
we're like, Pastor Josh, how, how do you know not, everyone's not going to, I mean, someone's going to get left out because everyone's going to be praying for you and your family. No, they won't. That's why you're asking the Spirit who to pray for before you start praying. And by His grace and the unbelievable power of the Spirit, everybody will be being, being prayed for, being, will be, will be being, will be prayed for. Don't have to say be being. <laughs> yes, everyone will be prayed for. Thank you, Sean. But not only this, families, during the month of July, who is it that the Lord is using you to go to? Maybe it's your neighbor, Wilson, or my neighbor, the Royals. And pray. Pray, God, they're dead. They're like the Dead Sea. There's no life in them. But you are a fountain of living water. And I want to be your hands and feet. Pray. Pray that God would use you. Pray that God would save their souls and that you would be the means by which he brings Christ to them. Pray for one person, one family. Don't just pray merely, God move in this community. That's part of it. But if God's going to move in this community, he's got to move in you. And that means you have somebody that you need to be a witness to. You. So who's that person? Write it down on that note card and start praying as a family for that person. Maybe it's a son or daughter who's gone wayward. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's someone that you just happened to meet playing pickleball. But there is someone God has placed in your path for you to speak Christ to and to love and serve. Who is it? pray for them. Finally, one of the practical means that we as a church over the month of July will do is we're going to have two specific Sunday nights, just prayer services. You know, we used to have those good old fashioned prayer services where you used to plead your heart out before God together corporately. We see that all throughout Acts and other sections of the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. But on Sunday, July 2nd and Sunday, July 16th, mark those on your calendar. It's also on your bulletin. We are going to have just a gathered time just to fervently pray together for specific things. Maybe some of those people that you are now being a witness to. Maybe a struggle or a deep thing in our life. Most of all, we are just going to pursue the love of Christ together. So Sunday night, July 2nd and July 16th, Sunday night. We'll be in here, and we'll just have that prayer. So mark that on your calendar. We'll hear more about it as we get closer to it. Let me ask you a question as we close. Do you have spiritual work to do as a follower of Christ? Do you? I want to see it like a... Yes, you all have a spiritual work to do. And if a spiritual work can only be done by spiritual means, and the only means we have access to the full work of Christ is through prayer in his spirit, then if you say, yes, I've got work, then what does it also mean you should be doing? Pray. So church, go pray, and then go obey. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.